Hey, good evening, everybody. Will you stand up as we sing and worship Jesus Christ together? Woo! There is no other so sure and steady as our King Jesus. Sing it together, church. There is no other so sure and steady. I hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand. Glory, glory, we have no other King but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring, we crown Him Jesus is 
but Jesus, Lord of all. Sing glory, glory. Glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem. Our loudest praises ring. We crown him, Lord. we gather, the reason we live, the, re the reason we breathe, our very breath is yours. There's nothing we claim, there's no privilege, no blessing we claim for our own good. We count it all as loss compared to gaining you. We love you. Amen. Uh, you can be seated. Well, hello and good evening. My name is Matt. I work with the kiddos here. Good to be with you. Uh, we're doing a prayer pause together tonight, and so um, if you're in first through eighth grade, uh, we I'm, sixth through eighth graders do it every week when they're in every time they're in here. But first through fifth graders, you're rarely in here, and I'm glad you're in here, and you guys are awesome. So thanks for being here, and uh, and so let's move into our time together tonight. We do prayer pauses uh, because we want to create some space to to refocus on God. And we slow our pace, and we relax. And we release to God both the, the burdens and also the praises of our day. And then we wait expectantly to receive from him the grace to persist and to persevere. And then finally, we're, we're just seeking real rest, that rest that can only come and only come through him. So uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2 tonight. And, and I wanted to reflect on uh, just a little bit of that passage as we, as we pray together. So this is uh, verses 12 and 13 in the New International Reader's Version. It says, So continue your work, or to continue to work out your own salvation. Do it with fear and trembling. God is working in you. He wants your plans and your acts to fulfill his good purpose. If I could pull out a summarizing principle from the text, then I might say it this way. We work while God works in us. We work while God works in us. Thinking about this passage, God brought to mind, he brought it back to mind, the prayer that we spent the summer praying together throughout the Rhythm series. We, we did this call and response prayer. We're not going to call and response tonight. I'm just going to read the lines. And then there's, there's, a, there's a set of questions on the screen that are just the same every time. Okay, If this little prayer is going to be come true in your life, what is God going to have to do to make it more true in your life? And what are you going to have to do to make that more true in your life? So I'll pray what's written out loud, and then we're going to leave about 30 seconds each time. I know that's going to feel like a long time for those who aren't sitting still normally, and it's going to feel like a brief time if you're used to it, but let's meet in the middle and, uh, and give it a try. So let's, let's pray together. God, we join with your church throughout history 
in studying Philippians, a letter that will help us live and love more like you. Make us more like Jesus. Help us, for we are prone to doing too little, withholding parts of ourselves from you. Father, expand our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. Help us, for we are prone to doing too much, trusting in our own accomplishments. Spirit, teach us to rest. Make us more like Jesus. Give us the patience and perseverance we need to trust your work as you shape us into the likeness of your perfect son. Make us more like Jesus. Kids, I'm pretty proud of y'all. That was amazing. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, we're about to take communion, and in a moment, you'll, you'll come forward, and the cups are nested together, so there's a, 
two cups, one on top of the other, um, and you'll just grab one stack. And uh, you'll take it when you're ready at the end of the time. But you'll receive both juice, and that juice is a symbol of the blood that Christ spilled for us at the cross. And you'll also receive the cracker. It's the symbol of Christ's body broken for us. And I'd like to continue in prayer for us over our communion together. God, thanks for giving us salvation, for working in us the new life of Christ. We know we're sinners, and we don't want to choose sin. We, we choose you and your good purpose. As we eat and drink, we remember you. Convict us, encourage us, work in and through us as we work with and for you. Be near us tonight, we pray. Amen. You can come forward. The tables are now open. You can take the elements back to your seat and, and take it when you're ready. The, the prayer areas are also available if you'd like just to go back and have a little quiet space with somebody else, by all means.
creation is pride and adoration, treasures woven by his love. His careful hands they hold us safe within his promise of calling and of destiny. We're heaven's fun creation, his pride and adoration, treasures woven by his love. His careful hands they hold us safe within his promise, calling and of destiny. And
Lord, help us to be moved by your faithfulness personally. I pray for every heart in this room, every mind hopefully fixed on you right now. I pray that you would move us personally to remember and see your faithfulness, please. Amen. Hey, in that same spirit of gratitude for his faithfulness, let's pray the offering prayer together. That's on the screen. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give can match your great gift to us, your son and your spirit, amen.
Philippians tonight. Hello. I'll introduce myself the way we do and celebrate recovery. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus, but I struggle with drug abuse, sex addiction, food issues, and grief. My name is Travis. Um, I am so happy to read tonight, but I've been at fellowship 26 years. I was a shepherding elder early on, and now I'm a governing, uh, I was a governing elder uh, early on, and now I'm a shepherding elder. I'm a uh, person who's been involved in lots of different programs, and I love them. The, the kids program, the teen program, the uh, Celebrate Recovery, the chorus, and some other things. And so let's read from the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without a fault in the warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you firmly hold to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. You know, I tend to imagine my life in much more epic terms than it actually is being lived out. Um, but it, it felt a little bit like that moment when a superhero who's been out of work for a while decides it's the moment to put back on the mask when this morning I woke up, walked out the door and felt the cool crisp air and knew what I had to do and I went into my closet and I found the, the flannel. 
And I said, it's time. And it feels really, really good after this summer to finally be stepping back into uh, the place that we're in. Hey, excited to dive back into Philippians tonight. Um, as, as we're walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, um, it's easy to, to kind of lose track of where we are. And, uh, you know, especially if you're, if you're a TV watcher and you're in a, a, a series that has a really tight arc of a story, they often have to do a, they often have to do it previously on just to remind you what happened last week. So we are stepping into the middle of a thought uh, as we come to the beginning of this verse. Uh, Travis read it said, therefore... And that therefore means Paul's about to conclude or wrap up what he just said. And so we should be reminded what we, what we saw last week was Paul was challenging the people of Philippi that they have been so faithful for so long, but he's heard that there's starting to be some disunity among them, some fighting and bickering among them. And so he challenges them, hey, wait, if you've experienced the love of Christ, then be like Christ, have his mindset, and consider others as more important than yourself. And he, and he proves that by walking through this, this poem about what Jesus did. That Jesus, even though he was fully God, even though he was completely like God, he didn't consider that high position something to cling on to for his own advantage, but rather he, he gave himself up. He made himself nothing for others. And he, it goes through in this hymn, and it gets to this glorious ending. It says, therefore, the name above all names has been given to Jesus. And that's the end of the hymn. And now Paul is coming back in verse 12 and reminding the people, hey, I actually had a point for your lives by talking about the great and glorious Jesus who made himself nothing for you. So he picks up that thought about, how, about what they should do as a result and as a response to the incredible, humble love of Jesus. And so that's where we pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And this is what we read. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence. Uh, the word Paul used there, dear friends, it's the word beloved. It's a, it's a very tender, loving term. Dear people that I love so much, you've always obeyed when I was there. Can you feel like the, the slight weight that Paul's putting on them as he writes this letter? You were always obedient to God's word when I was with you. Hint, hint, now that I'm absent, this is the, the word that a teacher gives to their class when they're about to be gone for three days. And they're saying, Behave for the sub like you behave for me. I don't want to hear a bad report. Paul is very gently saying, hey, the behavior that I'm hearing about from you, this bickering, that's, that's not what I saw when I was with you. So just like you did when I was there, keep living that way now that I'm not here. Even in my absence, even more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as soon as we read that phrase, anyone who's had history around the idea of salvation by works feels a little panicky, yes? Anybody panic just a little bit when you see the phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? What is going on here? How could Paul, who is willing to die for the idea that you cannot earn your salvation, salvation is not by works, it's by grace through faith, Turn around and say, make sure you go work out your salvation. Is he completely contradicting himself? 
Is he going back on everything he fought to teach? If, let's just make it a little more tense. Let's remind ourselves what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 when we studied Ephesians last. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says this. Let's bring that up. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. So what is Paul doing here? How could Paul go from teaching so clearly salvation is by grace through faith, it's not something you do by works, to turning around and telling people to work out their salvation? But notice verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This statement in Philippians chapter 2 is almost an exact parallel of what Paul, in fact, says in Ephesians chapter 2. Because Christ did this amazing thing to save you, there's a kind of life that you ought to live. Now, Paul's being really explicit about the relationship here in chapter 2. He's saying your salvation didn't come about by works so that you could take pride thinking you accomplished it. But your salvation does result in works. We're going to have to unpack that relationship a little bit more. But when we look at Philippians 2, we see that Paul is... Let's go back to Philippians 2, 12. Uh, Paul is, after looking at the humble work of Jesus... His conclusion is that the Philippians should obey by working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, this word, working out, it means, it, it's something like, it, it has the same root as the word work, but it means to, to bring it to effect, to, to see it through. Uh, the idea is to take this thing you've been given and put it into practice. It's like, uh, how many parents have given or kids have received a bicycle on Christmas morning? Anybody have this experience in this room? Or you've ever known a human who got a bicycle on Christmas morning? Hopefully that's, y'all just aren't raising your hands. Okay, whatever. Okay, so you remember this experience, right? You, you get the bicycle, it's beautiful, we're excited. You go out in the driveway and what do you say to the kid? Take it for a ride, right? That's what you have to do. You receive the bike, and then you need to go take it for a ride. When Paul says, work out your salvation, what he's saying is, God has given you this incredible gift of salvation. Take it for a spin. Put it into action. Go live it a little bit. Now, we have a tendency when trying to think about this relationship in salvation between faith and grace and works to end up in one of two extremes. So we end up with two ditches that we fall into that we wrestle with. One we'll call legalism. Now, legalism is what happens when we think I can earn my acceptance and standing through self-effort. That if I do the right things, I can make God love me. That God has some standard and if I will just meet his standard, then he'll love me. Then he'll accept me. Some people will explicitly teach this. Many of us, myself include this, tend to believe it in our heart. Every time you ever have that feeling when you fail that God must not love you anymore, 
That is a heart of legalism rising up inside you. Now, here's the funny thing about legalism and how it works. It usually ends up in one of two positions. Either you constantly feel like you're failing to measure up, so you're crippled in shame. You're crippled in believing you don't have what it takes. Or you actually think you're doing a great job keeping the rules, and you're bloated in arrogance. And you look down at all the other people who can't keep up with you. That's why Paul said it's not by work so that no one can boast. Either extreme of crippled in shame or bloated in arrogance is what happens when we get legalism. This is not the gospel. This is not the teaching of Jesus that you can go do enough to make God accept you. But there is a tendency to pendulum swing from this extreme of legalism. I forgot legalism's over here on my, up behind me, isn't it? This extreme of legalism. There's a tendency to swing way over here into another camp that we're going to call cheap grace. This is a term uh, that a German pastor during the 1940s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined. And cheap grace says, well, because I'm accepted as a gift, because God gave this to me and I can't earn it, God and others can demand nothing from me. And as soon as anyone challenges your behavior... As soon as anyone says, hey, I don't think the choices you're making honor God, you push back and say, hey, don't go putting your legalism on me. Don't go doing that. You see, legalism is not the opposite of cheap grace. We don't respond to thinking that you earn your salvation by saying your salvation demands nothing of you. Rather, the gospel, what the New Testament teaches about our salvation is that we have been brought in, we have been accepted as a sheer act of God's grace that we receive by faith. And because of that acceptance, God now has the right to demand some changes in our lives. God now has the right to claim how we ought to live. The best metaphor I know to explain this, this interaction is one that the, the New Testament regularly gives, and it's the relationship of adoption. We've had several families in our congregation adopt, and you know what none of them did? None of them put together a test that their kid had to pass before they would adopt them. None of them said, hey, we're going to spend a weekend with you, and I'm going to have you take a practice ACT. I'm going to do a physical and see how athletic you are. And we're going to see if you measure up to the kind of kid I'll be proud of. And if you pass all the tests, I'm going to adopt you. Right? No one does that. That's not how adoption works. Adoption is a choice of love by parents, not based on anything that child could do to earn it. No child who is adopted has to measure up before they can be adopted. But you know what also doesn't happen? When the child is adopted into the home... That child doesn't make their own rules, do they? The moment they're adopted into the home, they're now a part of that family, which means they live the lifestyle and under the rules that that household has. That's what it means to become a child of that family. And this is exactly what God does with us. God says, I'm gonna adopt you into my family. I'm gonna love, forgive, and accept you out of the overflow of my love and mercy and grace. You don't do anything to earn your standing with God. And when you are accepted, when you become a child of God, he is now your Lord and your Father. And so he does have the right to tell you 
the, way, the kind of changes that you ought to make in your life. And so Paul is saying here, in light of this incredible gift of salvation that God has given you in Christ Jesus, take that salvation for a spin. Go live it. Go work out the implications of God's grace in your life. And he says to do this with fear and trembling. Now that phrase, fear and trembling, um, it can sound to us like the idea of a child who is scared of getting struck by their parent. That is not the notion of fear and trembling before our God. Uh, When we talk about the fear of the Lord for people who are loved by God, people who know God know that they are always safe with him, that he always loves them, that he is always working for their good. Fear and trembling means you you have a kind of respect that always remembers who you're dealing with so that you desire to please him. We we had the opportunity when I was in... um, Choir in college, Cassie and I sang in a choir together. Normally we say you use illustrations that a lot of people can relate to. This one, like one person in the room is going to relate to because there's probably not a ton of choir nerds in here who are really excited about meeting Morton Lordson. Probably not a lot of you are really excited about that, but he's one of the most important choral composers of the last 50 years. And when we were in choir, we were going to sing his repertoire and he was going to come spend a week workshopping his music with us and then he was going to conduct us. It was the craziest, coolest experience for a bunch of choir nerds ever. And so we spent two months learning his music, and then he showed up in Fayetteville and came into the choir room, this legend of a conductor, and he just walks in, introduces himself, and says, okay, let's sing. And we're going to sing the songs that he wrote. And I remember this, and we are all just like shaking with this weird mix of excitement and terror Was it because we thought he might be a raging serial killer and he was going to kill us all? No, it's because we had this incredible awe of this man and we really wanted this to be a great experience. And I still remember, like, this is the, like, we were so excited about any feedback he would give us. After the first pass through the first song, I, I still remember the exact tone of his voice. He just went, Thank you for learning your French. The song was in French. He goes, I work with so many people who don't know their French. And, like, as a little, like, 19 year old college kid, I was like, Oh, he thinks we're good. This is really great. Like, we had this awe of this man, and we were so excited to work with him to see what would happen. This is what happens when you have fear and trembling before God. It's not that you are scared of him. It's that you are so in awe of him that you never forget who he is. That you desire to please him, to learn from him. And and I think one of the things Paul is saying here is in this him that we saw last week where Jesus humbles himself to the point of a servant, Paul is saying, hey, don't think because Jesus humbled him to the point of a servant that now you get to be so arrogant as to think you're the master. What a foolish, arrogant posture to go, Jesus, that was really great of you to die for me for my salvation. Thank you very much. I'll go live my own way now. What an arrogant thing to tell the God of the universe. So Paul is saying side by side, we have the Jesus who is so humble that he'll become a servant obedient to death on the cross for us. But don't forget the end of the hymn. So God exalted him to the name that is above every name. So as we follow him, remember the one that you follow. And then Paul adds another layer to it. As we read on in verse 12, 
Going into 13, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and act according to fulfill his good purpose. Paul says, work out your salvation because God is at work in you. God's already working in you, so take advantage of that and participate. Paul is saying, you have the incredible opportunity of the God of the universe, the creator, who wants to transform you. Why would you pass that up? I remember several years ago, y'all have heard me talk about Gary Oliver and the role that he's had in my life. Several years ago, um, when I, the first, one of the first times I'd ever met him, Gary said, hey, Nick, I just want to let you know, if you ever wanted to, to meet with me, I'd love to just do some work in your life. I don't know what it says when a professional licensed counselor says, I think you should spend some time with me. Um, but at the time... I, I didn't have the maturity to recognize what I went. I had one meeting with him. We sat down. We talked for an hour. I was like, that was really sweet. And I drove away and didn't email or call him back. I didn't have the self-awareness to know how broken I was and how much I needed him. I don't remember the timeline. It was probably two years later when I actually realized what a wreck I was that I sent him an email and said, hey, is that offer still stand? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Come on out. And I had the opportunity of this amazing, godly, wise person to help me grow. And at first, I didn't appreciate what that opportunity was. I didn't see my need of what Gary could offer me and what God could do in my life through Gary. It took me getting to a place where I could recognize, oh, if Gary is willing to work with me so that I can grow, why would I not show up and take advantage of it? Now, how much more is the situation that Paul is pointing to here? He's saying, God is ready to do some work with you. God is ready to get inside your heart and transform you. Why would you not take him up on that? Work out your salvation with God because he wants to work with you. This is what the Holy Spirit of God inside us does, is he comes to work and to transform us. Now, when we think about the presence of the Spirit in our lives, I think a lot of times the metaphors and the, the language we use to talk about the Holy Spirit are, are pretty twisted and backwards compared to how the New Testament presents the Spirit. I'll often, I've heard people describe the Holy Spirit as being like the outlet in the wall that we plug into to get energy for transformation. Um, I think that's a really bad, unhelpful metaphor for multiple reasons. Um, one of the reasons is the, the outlet in the wall has no personality and has no will and cannot tell us anything. The outlet in the wall can't love us, and we use the outlet for our purposes. It's just a source of power that we plug into so that we can do what we want with it. The Holy Spirit is the living God, the Lord of the universe. He's not a, a power source that you plug into so you can get energy to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So if the Holy Spirit is at work to influence us, he's not a power source that you plug into He's a person who wants to know and love you. So how do you begin to let God go to work on you? That was the, everything we talked about this summer, about rhythms, about spiritual disciplines, about how to stop and spend time with the Lord and prayer and scripture. You let a person influence you by spending time with that person, getting to know the goodness and the love of that person. So Paul is saying, Work out your salvation. Start to practice obedience. And the way that you're going to be empowered and able to do that is if you're spending time with the one who loves you and wants to work in you so they can fuel and empower that transformation. 
Now, as Paul goes on further, he says that he's doing this to accomplish something good in you. And then he gives the command in verse 14. It's the very pointed command that is really what Paul is trying to address here. This is the, real, the specific issue that they're dealing with. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. That phrase, grumbling or arguing, is one that would have caught the original listener's ear. And in fact, the next paragraph is filled with strung together phrases from the Old Testament. Uh, Paul has taken stuff from Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Daniel and strung them together in a series of phrases to talk about something. And this phrase, grumbling or arguing, is a phrase that people who grew up hearing the Hebrew Scriptures would have immediately recognized. We have some phrases in our culture that if, you're, if you haven't been in America your whole life, they might not mean anything to you. But if you've been around here for a long time, if you hear the phrase, rocket's red glare... Anyone else might just think that's a vivid description of what a rocket looks like, right? But if you hear rocket's red glare and you've grown up in America, what is that from? Star-spangled banner. We immediately recognize that phrase, right? So if I'm in the middle of talking about something and I throw the phrase rocket's red glare into it, everybody just knows I've conjured the image of patriotism, of America, and of the star-spangled banner. When Paul says this phrase, do everything without grumbling or arguing, that phrase, grumbling or arguing, is, a, is an allusion, an echo to what Israel did in the wilderness after the Exodus. And it's really appropriate for what Paul's describing here. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. He did all the work to save them. And then he takes them out and says, now I want you to walk with me. And what do they do? They start bickering and complaining and rebelling. And, and Paul, I think, wants us to catch that echo of when we receive God's grace and then we proceed to bicker and argue and complain and fight with each other, we're acting just like Israel did in the wilderness. We're failing to live out the grace that we've been given. And he says, I want you to do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you'll shine among them like the stars of the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. The, when I, the first several times I read this, I thought, Paul, you're getting a little melodramatic here. Seriously? Like, if you'll just start comp stop complaining, you'll shine like stars in the sky. How is telling a group of people to stop grumbling and complaining the key that unlocks all the glory of God in their life and makes them a witness to a wicked world. That's why I think the reference to Israel in the wilderness is so important. God did a wonderful work in their life. Everything was going so well, and they got grumpy. They started complaining for reasons that are kind of understandable, right? I mean, you've got... Thousands upon thousands of people with kids walking in the desert with no water. How, many, how long do you guys make it on a road trip with kids without water and without a bathroom stop before there's grumbling and complaining? Right? It's understandable. But they start complaining about not having enough water. They start complaining about not having enough food. They start grumbling about where they're going. And over time, more and more discontentment builds in their heart. They're unhappy with where God's brought them. They're unhappy with what's happening because it's not enough. And you know where it ends? 
They end up building an idol, a golden calf, and say, let's worship this instead of the God who rescued us. What started with a little discontentment spiraled out of control to abandoning the Lord. How often are the greatest sins in our lives just the outworking of grumbling and complaining and discontentment? And specifically, in the Philippian church, they're grumbling and complaining with each other. They're getting frustrated and angry with each other. Now think about what a witness, a church of very different, awkward people who learns to love and care for each other without grumbling and complaining. Think about what that would say to the world around us. Question, when you think about the public discourse in our country today, when you think about social media and what's happening on the TV screen, would you say the voice of evangelical Christians is a voice that avoids grumbling and complaining? In fact, I would say that, um, I just need to address this real quick. Did you know that arguing and complaining is not a spiritual gift? Paul says, put grumbling and complaining aside. If you will learn to say no to that in your life, there's a transformation that will happen. Because as this discontentment grows, you become less interested in letting God do what he's going to do in your life. I have noticed this pattern that I just tend to be a grumbly, complainy person. It doesn't take much for me to go there. Um, you know, one quick example is I, I tend to not do so well when I haven't had food. And I also tend to be the one who cooks in the family. And so what happens is, is I cook dinner. I've been smelling the food the whole time. And as soon as it's ready, what do I expect? Everyone is at the table right then ready to eat. So you know what happens when I have food ready and people aren't right at the table? I'm angry and I feel very entitled to be angry. That's the really funny thing about grumbling and complaining is I turn into the mean person attacking other people and I think I'm the victim. That's what grumbling and complaining tends to do to us. We attack other people and think we're the victims. And on a more serious note, although that's plenty serious enough, I had a conversation, by the way, when I share stories about my family, I ask permission to do this beforehand. Um, so just know I've got the green light on this story. My wife and I have very different personalities. Anyone who knows Cassie and I knows that that's true. Um, I tend to be very indirect, conflict avoidant. I see things in shades of gray, and I tend to dance around what I need to say. My wife is the opposite of all of that. Everything is black and white. She's not afraid of conflict, and she tends to tell you exactly what she means. And for most of our marriage, I have complained about that attribute of hers. I've told her that she hurts my feelings a lot, and she needs to learn to say things more gently the way I do. Now, when I talk in front of a lot of other people, I'll say, all different personalities matter. And I'll say things like that, and I'll tell people that there's balance and there's, there's goodness to both kinds of personalities. And she had the, the courage and the grace recently. We were having a, I think it's called a fight. We were having a fight. And she told me, she said, Nick, I know that you in theory believe that me being direct is a gift. But all I ever hear you do is complain about my directness. You've never told me that you think my directness is a gift in our marriage. 
And I was shocked and I thought about it and I remembered all the times that she has actually saved us from ruin because she had the courage to address a problem head on instead of letting it get swept under the rug. I thought of all the times that her directness was something that blessed us and instead of being grateful, I grumbled about it because she hurt my feelings. She was right. I grumbled and complained about something that sure is sometimes difficult for me but it's actually a gift. Paul says that one of the key ways that we can let the grace and work of God be transformed in us is if we will give up grumbling and complaining with each other. Now, we don't see it in this tiny little snapshot of Philippians 2, but what is the command that happens more than anything else in this book of Philippians? Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. What is the opposite of grumbling and complaining? Rejoice, have gratitude. So here's, here's the walk away that I want us to try out this week. What if, you remember, kids, how many of y'all do T-charts in school? Anybody had to do a T-chart lately? I'm gonna just trust the hands are going up somewhere. I want us to make a T-chart this week. I'm challenging you right now, everyone in this room, take 30 minutes this week to make a T-chart. And on the left, put everything you've been grumbling about lately. Everything that you've been bickering about, complaining about, and grumbling about. Maybe it's how terrible things are in the country. Maybe it's that obnoxious neighbor. Maybe it's what that politician said on the news. Maybe it's what your spouse said to you recently, or the fact that your parents don't understand what's going on. Go ahead, do it. Just go to town. Make your grumble list on the left side. And then on the right side, make your gratitude list. List all the things that God is working in your life to be grateful for. And many of them might actually be the opposite side of the coin from your grumble list. I'm not challenging us to say a bunch of shallow Christianese to just answer with everything, God's good and I'm great. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that hard things don't happen in life. And he's not saying you shouldn't be sad about them or angry about them. But he is saying don't be the kind of people who give in to grumbling and complaining with God and others and fail to rejoice in what God's doing in your life. And he says when you do that, the Spirit of God wants to come inside and work inside you and transform you into the kind of person that will look unlike anyone else out there. And the church of God will have a witness in this culture, in this country, in this generation that points to the love and humility of Jesus. Lord, we wanna be those kind of people. We wanna be people who look like you and sound like you and talk like you. And Lord, I know in my heart, I'm given to grumble and complain. Lord, I pray that this week is an act of obedience, that I would yield to your Spirit's work in me, and that each one of us would choose to rejoice instead of giving in to grumbling and complaining. That we would work out the salvation that you have so graciously given us with fear and trembling and awe between a loving and humble, before a loving and humble God. Praising in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you guys stand with us as we sing our song?
Lord, we give over our sin to you. What a big thing to say, but we give it over to you and we ask that you would move in us and shape us and mold us. And we are sorry for um, our vision of our life and even our, our hands and our feet, the testimony of our actions in our lives. Mourn your spirit or more in light of the grumbling and complaining of our heart rather than the gratitude. Mark us by people of gratitude, please. By your spirit, King Jesus, we love you and we pray. Amen. Hey, before you leave, a couple quick things. One really main quick thing is Street Fest is coming up. It's on the 18th. If you don't know what Street Fest is, it's just where all of our families come together. We dress up in silly costumes, we play games, and we have a fun time. I'm just going to challenge you toward two things regarding Street Fest. Please remember, if you would, to bring a canned good or a dry food to Street Fest that we would be able to donate a big portion of um, food to Samaritan uh, Community Center, as well as maybe invite a neighbor, invite a friend from work, someone or a family that you know that might not be doing anything that night to just come to your church campus with you as a family and hang out with us. Um, Also, next service, like right after this, A student of ours, Drew Imbo, is going to be baptized. So feel free to maybe stay and watch, or at the very least, as you leave and you're in the car with your families or your friends or your roommates, maybe say a prayer over Drew before she gets baptized here. I mean, Ruby, Ruby, I was just talking to Drew, her sister. Uh, Ruby, um, say a prayer over Ruby before she gets baptized, um, that the Lord would be with her and that she would feel some incredible sweetness of his spirit through the life change testimony tonight, okay? Ruby, Ruby and Bill. Ruby. <laughs> Mosaic family, go in peace to love and to serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.